1: Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
2: Welcome to What You Miss This Week. I'm Caroline Hyde. This podcast is some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co anchor with Romaine Bostick, Taylor Riggs, and Joe Weisenthal. what you miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. After years of debate, legislative efforts to reimagine what local law enforcement should be, well they've started to accelerate, with House Democrats, Senate, Republicans and the White House all releasing their own proposals. We spoke about them with one of the most well-known figures in U.S. policing, Bill Bratton. Bratton served as police commissioner for Boston, Los Angeles and New York City and is credited for statistical approaches in the 1990s that lowered crime rates. But he has also been the subject of criticism for some of the police tactics employed to reach those goals. Bratton is now Senior Managing Director at Teneo and the Executive Chairman of the risk advisory business, Teneo Risk. We started by asking him if he thought local police chiefs would be receptive to these overhaul efforts from the federal level.
3: Uh, we have three, what you would hope would be coordinated initiatives. Uh, there's going to be some overlap certainly between the three. Uh, The devil is in all things is the details. Uh, What of these proposals are actually going to survive? What are actually going to be funded? How long will they take? I think most of what's being proposed in the president's initiative, what I know of the Senate, and then I think tomorrow Congress, uh, the House comes out with their proposal, would be embraced by uh, police chiefs, particularly the idea of the national screening system so that an officer who is discharged from one department for cause would not end up being hired by another department, not knowing that he had been discharged elsewhere. That national registry, I think all chiefs would be very, very supportive of. Uh, the idea of uh, social responders trying to take some of the functions that have been dumped on the police over the last 30 years that... Uh, The idea of having other individuals who are more highly trained to take on that responsibility, something that also support. uh, Mm -hmm. At the same time, that's going to be extraordinarily costly, and you're going to need a lot of them. So much of police resources now are committed to focusing on whether it's drug addiction, homeless, uh, many things that the rest of society and government has failed to handle, have been literally dumped on the police over the last 20 or 30 years. So there's a lot of good stuff here. Again, the idea is what actually survives the uh, review process, the funding process. And this is also going to be competing with uh, 50 governors who are all rushing to try and implement changes in their states, and the 18,000 mayors, uh, business managers, city managers who oversee the country's 18,000 separate police forces. A lot of people trying to get into the, t- the tent here that uh, I hope there's room for all of them. There's a lot of good stuff here, mm. but let's see what happens with
2: it. Commissioner, bureaucracy is thick, clearly, and you talk about how costly this could be. The approach that you see, I mean, it's interesting, as, as your career was really on the trajectory upwards when you are with New York, L.A., Boston, talk was more about more resources going to the police, more action to tackle crime, but now it seems to be almost the polar opposite. How do you square that circle of... The cost basis, the funding argument that goes here, what does defund the police mean to you?
3: Well, for example, in the city of New York, uh, the police force in New York was enlarged by 5,000 school safety officers when the Department of Education was hopeless in trying to control their activities. They put it under the better managed police department. The 5,000 traffic agents, similarly, very poorly managed by the Department of Transportation, many years ago put under the control of the police. because In New York, the police are thought to be the best managed agency in city government. Uh, So many services in New York have failed. And when they fail, they tend to dump it onto the police department. So the defunding that the politicians are celebrating in New York is effectively taking away what was given to the police years ago when the other bureaucracies failed to supervise them adequately. We'll see uh, uh, how that goes, whether they're able to actually do that transfer of responsibilities, whether the agencies are effective in uh, taking care of them. The other thing they're talking about is cutting overtime. Uh, Well, that's a false savings because let's face it, in the midst of what just happened in the last three weeks, no city is not going to put police out to deal with demonstrations, whether they're orderly or not. And so uh, anytime they cut police overtime budgets, uh, that's basically some of the shell games that the politicians like to engage in. But let's face it, what we we're talking about here is reform. And a lot of the reform is necessary, it's needed, would be embraced by policing, but it's going to be costly. Mm. And so the idea of defunding the police, that uh, do you want to reduce training for police instead of increasing training? The thing I'm most concerned about is the ability to hang on to the officers that we have, as well as hire new officers. What kid in his right mind in America, particularly as a minority, at this time would want to join a police force? Yeah. If you're a minority, you're basically going to be called an Uncle Tom if you're an African-American. And all the stress that's on police departments at the moment, I really wonder and worry about where policing is going to yeah. be in the next yeah. several years.
4: You know, it's very interesting that some congressmen, congresswomen that we've been talking to say that that Trump executive order has the right frame of mind, but it doesn't go far enough. And they want specific calls to ban certain methods. When you talk about really enforcing the rules of banning the chokeholds, banning the knee to the neck, is that something that can be realistically enforced? Is that something that could be embraced here as we talk about maybe reducing some of the violent tactics that are used? <laughs>
3: The elephant in the room in American policing is that there are 18,000 police forces, there are 50 different states, and there are this federal government. So there is no there are no national standards for most of what policing uh, does. So the issue you just raised about chokeholds, the uh, president has his perspective, congressmen, congresswomen, as you just described, have their perspective on it. The 50 state governors have theirs, the 18,000 uh, uh, entities that manage police departments have theirs. So how we get all these people to one common place in the sense of what is a chokehold? When can it be used? When is it illegal? Is it criminal? Is it administrative? Uh, this is part of the uh, debate that's going to be undertaken. The good news is there's a recognition that the chokehold is something that needs to be carefully looked at and described and preferably national standards would come into play so that everybody in those 18,000 police departments has to Mm -hmm. effectively play by the same rules. The American public gets very confused when they see in one state a police officer who uses a uh, particular use of force is fired on the same day he inappropriately uses it. In another state it may take years. What they don't understand is every one of those 18,000 police departments operates under a different set of rules. Yeah. And that's the confusion yeah. that exists in America today.
2: Confusion that we hope we can sift through and more clarity will be brought through expertise such as yours, Bill well, well, ho- Bratton. Well, hopefully,
3: uh, hopefully we all end up looking through the uh, the same uh, pane of glass and and clearly see our way to get these issues resolved because they do need to be resolved.
2: The corporate world has continued to try to navigate their response to the global outcry against racial inequality. Some of the most ardent private sector responses have been from technology companies, but many black entrepreneurs are expressing skepticism about how the industry is actually changing. We spoke about what it's like to be a black founder and executive in Silicon Valley with James Norman, who is the CEO and co-founder of Pilotly. He also is a partner at Transparent Collective. We started by asking him about his experience as a black entrepreneur and having to come up to the table with a better financial position than his white counterparts.
5: Um, well, to bring some clarity to that, just a much, much better position in terms of uh, company metrics. So, whether that be the amount of revenue you're generating or the rate at which you're generating uh, new growth, number of users. Um, the metrics, you come more buttoned up. But that's no different than how we have to show up anywhere else in the world. So, you know, we're not going to show up to a job interview half prepared. We don't, we can't show up in professional places half prepared because we already know the bar is going to be higher. And so by nature, by sheer nature of that, the same applies to Silicon Valley. Um, if you show up uh, with a pre company that doesn't have an actual product and it's just an idea – um, there is almost a 0% chance of you getting funded um, as a black founder doing that versus on the other side of the table. Um, that's a much more common uh, situation.
2: It's interesting. We've heard similar things coming from Jessica Matthews, who leads Uncharted Power over here in near New York. And we've heard that from luxury founders such as Carly Cushney saying you need to have a proven revenue stream before you can go out and raise money. James, I'm interested about how you think of the change that is upon us. Is there a change? Do you feel that, that we are starting to see a focus on what is basically institutional racism at its heart. And will that change the ability of more startup founders to come through people of color and raise money more successfully?
5: Yeah, um, I think there is change upon us right now, just in this current moment. Um, There's a lot of work to do to make the change happen, but I think uh, the situation with Jessica Matthews is, you know, a pretty good example in the sense that she was building something that was or is, uh, you know, bigger than, you know, your next app, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, when you talk about trying to create world-changing technology, especially hardware, that takes real money. And so it becomes almost impossible for someone to show up to the table with a product um, that goes beyond the vision when you're in a pre cc stage. Um, so not, not offering that access to black founders in the same way actually precludes us from being a part of um, some of this major growth happening in tech. When you think about the biggest ideas, oftentimes they end up taking a decent amount of capital to kind of get ramping up, and then that's where there's a huge gap. Um, So as far as, like, the change uh, taking place, I feel like right now, um, you know, one, more people are reaching out, trying to see, like, oh, well, we really don't have a diverse founder base. Okay, why is that? But then, you know, I recently uh, published uh, an article around the Definitive Guide to Investing in Black Founders. And in in that deep discovery, because I've known these things but had not articulated it, I realized that there's four key challenges to this happening. So it doesn't matter, like, how many meetings these VCs take and things of that nature. um, They have to understand that we are often going to solve different problems, even we'll solve the same problem with a different type of solution. So like the approach can be different when you're coming from a different background, and that kind of leads to like, when you have different surroundings, you are given different resources in order to grow your company. So the friends and family ground, which is also common in the early stage of a company, that is non-existent for Black people. So that puts you in a different position in the first place. But even from there, you know when you when you do finally build that product, you network your way through, right? Because you don't necessarily you not come from a background where you have a network around tech or even high network people. So then once you once you get your way to pitch these people, not they're not knowing how much harder it was for you to get to that table than the next founder. But you have a different culture that leads a different communication in many cases. And so we always are meeting people halfway in all conversations. Even right now I'm meeting you halfway, it's how I'm articulating what I'm delivering. But in the V C world, they're not making any movement to meet to meet this person any any percentage of the way, even though they're really foreign to them. Because most of mm-hmm. these people don't have black people in their friend circle, black people in their community. They don't fully understand how we're communicating. We, we communicate more declaratively. Um, again, we're gonna we're gonna be looking you in the eye more. We're gonna be maybe having less smiles on our face because this is a serious situation for us. Like this is like, you know, do or die. To you know, like not put it lightly. Like these companies are everything, and like the amount of energy being poured into them to get to that table right. is is on a hundred percent. So like you're very serious and very passionate about what you're doing. Um, and then ultimately, under all, under all that is the underlying unconscious bias, which is always spoken about, but yeah. it's really just putting mental cycles into communicating with people. Like treating, you're basically to treat people with respect. Like black people communicate with people, um, with respect in general. And so when we come to the table in a professional setting, we're expecting a mutual level of respect. So we showed up with respect when we said we're going to meet you 70% of the way, speaking your language you know, we're going to sit up straight, look you in the eye, and give you real information. Like, we're not going to lie to you. We're not going to lie to you about what the traction yeah. was or what it's going to be next. Like, that's our form of respect. So the form of respect no. back is, I'm going to stare at my phone and ask you questions you already answered and then patronize you about your market. Then, like, you, you can't expect that communication to go as smoothly as possible depending on the person. So there's just challenges in the way of people making an investment, but at least the minds are open to knowing that, There's a huge opportunity investing in Black founders at this point in time, and always has been. But now you have a bunch of pent-up opportunity where you could connect the dots and see great growth of people who are excellent entrepreneurs.
1: You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. Banking services provided by Green Bank, member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
2: We also spoke with a medical pioneer about a cheap and widely used anti inflammatory drug showing major promise to treat COVID 19 patients in the UK. Dr. William Hasselting spent his career at the forefront of medical research, educating a generation of doctors at Harvard Medical School, where he designed the strategy to develop the first treatment for HIV-AIDS and led the team that pioneered the development of new drugs based on information from the human genome. Today, he serves as the president of Access Health International. We started by asking him if the new study from University of Oxford researchers gave him hope.
6: Uh, it surely does. And if you're a doctor on the front lines, you've got to work with the tools you have, not with the tools you wish you had. Not with a vaccine that may or may not appear, what, not with a drug that may or may not appear. And so what's been happening, and it's very encouraging to see around the world, is that there are a number of advances that have dramatically reduced death. This is, I count, uh, the fourth in a series. The first one is really simple you flip people over on their stomach instead of keeping on their back all the time. Turns out that allows the deep lungs to get more air. That saved a lot of lives. Second, people found that if you use anticoagulants, one of the really amazing discoveries of this infection is late in the disease course, it inflames your blood vessels and that can trigger blood clots, massive blood clots all over your body. So judicious use of blood clots has had a very dramatic effect on reducing uh, death. There was a drug cocktail that uh, was put together in Hong Kong based on their experience with SARS and MERS using, again, off-the-shelf drugs. Anticoagulants are off the shelf. These drugs that were used in Hong Kong, uh, interferon beta and uh, ribavirin, are also unpatented, they're off-patent, they've been used for a long time, make a big difference. The drug that does it, and now dexamethasone, added to all of that. The drug that doesn't make a difference to survival is the one everybody's running around about, from remdesivir. Studies show it makes absolutely no difference if you're really sick to your outcome. However, it's really encouraging that we have tools at hand that make a big difference. And I'll tell you how big a difference. If you went into an ICU unit and needed breathing support through an intubation at the beginning of the epidemic, you had about a 90 to 80% chance of dying 80 to 90% chance of dying today you have an 80% chance of living it's a big advance
2: wow that really does put into the context of how important generic drugs the, the under our noses can perform but doctor what about the hope for some sort of silver bullet some sort of vaccine that might prevent not only the disease ripening within people, but hopefully even stopping the spread. Are you hopeful for that in the next 12 to 18 months, as it stands? Well,
6: we all like the handicap thing. So I would say I'm pretty sure, based on my own work and what I see around, that and I would give it a 90 percent chance mm-hmm. that we're going to have drugs that will prevent people who are infected from getting sick. And those self-same drugs will prevent those who are exposed from being infected. And I give that a 90% chance within a year, year and a half at most. Uh, I would give vaccines at this point where we know very early, it's like judging a horse race when the gates have just opened, Mm -hmm. I give it a 50-50 chance. We don't know yet, we don't know enough. We know enough to be worried, but we have some encouraging results. So we're in an intermediate phase, it's a little too early to call. But as far as the drugs that are going to be able to really treat this disease. And these won't be off the shelf drugs, these usually brand new drugs directed specifically for the virus. And we can look forward over time to a single shot that will prevent you from being infected for months. Uh, that's just happened for HIV AIDS and I'm sure we can do it for this virus too. So, doctor, if we do get to that stage, or when we get to that stage, is this the type of vaccine, this the type of drug uh, that would have to sort of be revisited or updated on a yearly basis in the way that we see other uh, types of vaccines, like the annual flu shots and things like that? Or is this just going to be kind of a one-shot deal, no pun intended? I think it would be, it it doesn't look at this point like it'll be a one-shot deal. Hmm. It looks like a vaccine, and I'm going to make a distinction between two kinds of drugs. There are vaccines that your body makes an immune reaction to, and you therefore have some degree of protection. It doesn't look at this early stage, and I emphasize early stage, it is going to last very long. So you'll probably need boosters, or you'll need another shot. The drugs, on the other hand, by their very nature will, at this point, only last a certain amount of time. Now if they're easy to take like a pill, you can take those for a very long time. You know, if you're in an endemic malaria area, you can take those pills pretty often, and you can take them for a long time. You can take them if you're just a tourist, or you can take them if you live there. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. Or a long-acting shot, so you just have one shot, it lasts two or three months. I developed an antibody for anthrax. You give it to people and they're protected for one to two months from anthrax infections. So those are the kinds of things that we're developing. As I say, I'm pretty sure we're going to have the drug half of that, 50 percent sure we're going to have the vaccine as part of that.
4: Doctor, we were getting some headlines out today that Beijing has closed its schools as they are now seeking, seeing a second wave of infections. Curious your thoughts on a second wave and if maybe with some of these vaccines, if it gets gives us the disease, our bodies can learn to fight it as long as it prevents the most severe symptoms, then that helps herd immunity and helps us to recover from this faster. How are you thinking about a second wave, schools reopening, herd immunity?
6: Those are a bunch of questions. I'll throw into <laughs> one, but I'll, I'll try to take them apart. First of all, what's happening in China, in, in Beijing specifically? For the last six weeks, they've had no cases. All of a sudden, a few cases popped up. And that is what we can expect in the most successful public health measures to contain this disease. No cases for a long time, sporadic cases, do everything you can to control it before it spreads. And I'm pretty sure they're gonna do that. That's what you can do without a vaccine or without a drug. And they're doing it and they're doing it effectively. We should be lucky to get there. Rather than zero cases for six weeks, we've had over 20,000 cases a day for more than two and a half months. And we still have 20,000 cases a day for two and a half months. So we're very far from where we'd like to be. Now the next question you asked is, is there such a thing as herd immunity? I don't think it exists for coronaviruses. Mm. The way we reason, and the reason we think that, is that a long time ago coronaviruses got into the human population. And every year the self-same viruses come back again and again and again, infecting the very same people and giving them the very same thing. When I look deep into this virus, and I'm learning more about it all the time, this is a very complex virus. And it has at least 20 tools at its disposal to change our immune system in its favor. And part of that change is to say, okay, get rid of me today, but I'm gonna come back tomorrow. That's how it evolved. It's cracking our immune system's code. It cracked it a long time ago. It knows how to do that. And these viruses are very likely to come back. So that's why it's going to be harder to vaccine, not a slam dunk. And it's why this is going to be around for a long time. There is no herd immunity for the current generations of cold viruses that affected us for decades and longer.
2: Then we spoke with Josh Ernest, the Chief Communications Officer at United, who also formerly served as the White House press secretary under President Obama. We talked about United's efforts to revive the summer travel season and how the private sector can enact policies to fight racial inequality.
7: Well, I think there are a couple of things that are at play. The first is, and the thing that frankly that is within our control. Is our ability to do everything we can to make people feel safe and confident uh, when they're on an airplane and that is why we have overhauled all of our cleaning procedures and a range of other procedures about uh, about flying to build confidence we have a policy in place that everybody who boards the plane wears masks Uh, we are now overhauling our uh, cleaning procedures so that we're using electrostatic sprayers these are devices that they use to disinfect hospital rooms we're using them to disinfect the interior of aircraft before every single flight and we've partnered with clorox and Cleveland Clinic to advise us on the policies and procedures and products that we should be using to make people feel safe. So that is certainly an important part of this calculation. But the other important part is, frankly, not really in, within our control, which is we do need a situation where businesses uh, are hosting big meetings,
5: mm-hmm. where
7: there are conventions. These are the kinds of things that get business travelers back on the road. That's important to our business. And uh, you know, we certainly, as that activity picks up, we would expect to see a cor- corresponding improvement in air travel as well.
2: So do you think that the summer, for example, looking away from the worker to the vacationer, is it picking up? Do you see signs of an improvement? We, uh,
7: you know, as we have been talking about, um, we uh, have plans in place to essentially double the size of our schedule between June to July. That's a big improvement, It's off, but that's off a really low base. You know, mm-hmm. the, our schedule in June, we're, we're flying a little over 10% um, of our typical schedule this month. We do expect to be flying close to 25% of that schedule next month. So that's a big improvement, but it is a long way from normal. Mm-hmm. So, Josh, uh,
6: just regards to the finances here at at UAL, I mean, you guys have raised uh, uh, just uh, or at least announced uh, uh, intentions to raise uh, more than $10 billion just in the past couple of weeks alone. I I see that liquidity levels, at least based on Bloomberg reporting, is expected to be about $17 uh, billion, I should say, by the end of September. Is that going to be enough to get you guys through this period, presuming that we don't get back up to 2019 levels of uh, air capacity? Well, listen, it's
7: in and of itself uh, it is not it, it, what we are trying to do is we are trying to do everything we can to make sure that we've got the kind of liquidity that we need and obviously 17 billion dollars at the end of september is substantial uh, but that in and of itself is not going to be um, enough we're also um, taking uh, significant steps to reduce our costs everywhere we can uh, and we've announced dramatic reductions in spending on things like capital expenditures We've scrubbed our books, all of our operating expenditures. We've made significant reductions, reducing payments to vendors yeah. and those kinds of things. And we'd also anticipate that United Airlines is going to be a smaller airline after October 1st. Uh, and that means that we'll be find a smaller schedule, and that means that we'll need fewer people to operate that schedule. So we're uh, you know, putting measures in place to work with our unions, to design programs. Hopefully we can focus on voluntary programs uh, where we can reduce our labor expense until we begin to see uh, demand, uh, you know, return, um, you know, at a, at a faster pace than it is right now.
2: Josh, you're a man who's having to communicate with your various stakeholders, whether they be your workforce, whether they be your customers, whether you be your investor base as well. And I'm interested, it's not just a one where you're trying to bring back safety measures, trying to bring back demand for planes. We're also trying to tackle a time of social division here in the United States. You're a man who communicated on behalf of the administration under Obama. I'm interested as a, someone who can straddle both corporate and government, We've been speaking a lot about diversity, been speaking a lot about the racial inequality that we see at the heart of the discourse in America at the moment. How are you looking to a corporate response at the moment? I want to just play to you first a woman who knows something about that and who wants to hear more from corporates. It's Ursula Burns, of course, one of the only female black leaders of a Fortune 500 company in the last few years. Take a listen.
6: It's really important that the rhetoric in the administration, which is generally negative and definitely demeaning, that that has to be offset by some action, real action. It's important that companies start to stand up and say, we have something to do with this. We have
7: something to do with the solutions.
2: What is United Airlines trying to do to stand up in terms of this sort of communication role?
7: Listen, I think it's a a terrific question. And it's an important question because... It's a hard one, and it is one that, for a long time, uh, you know, companies and institutions and individuals have would have frankly preferred to just not talk about it uh, because it's hard. Uh, but you know, the situation, the you know, the, the circumstances of our country and the kind of conversation that we've been having over the last couple of weeks uh, that was prompted by the death of, of George Floyd in police custody and the large public reaction to it. Um, has prompted a much bigger discussion. And it is forcing uh, companies and institutions and people uh, to think uh, in a way that they haven't before, I think in many cases, about what role and responsibility they have to address systemic racism in our in our country. And there is an important role for um, companies like United Airlines. We uh, work hard and take great pride in a culture that, Uh, does not tolerate um, racism and bigotry. Uh, But how do we do more to put that into practice um, and make sure that we have uh, a company um, and workers who are um, making an important contribution to progress? Um, And and that's not the kind of thing uh, that fits neatly into a news release that you issue just to be part of a broader conversation. What it really means is it means taking a hard look um, at the business and at your company and your culture and making some long-term commitments that you intend to see through even after uh, the media spotlight has turned to something else.
2: That's it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like the podcast, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tune in every weekday to our Daily Market Close show from 3:30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 pm streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.
0: You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through.